I'm very excited about this uh, series because I feel like uh, it's a kind of a personal word to us uh, individually as well as a church. And today's sermon really couldn't stand alone. It kind of, it's going to go with the others. So we're, we're going to leave plenty of things unsaid today. And, and that's always a good thing when the pastor is willing to leave some things unsaid. Because you go stay up here a long time when you try to say everything. <laughs> um, so let's get, let's get into it. The, the call to leave and go with God. The series is called Going Where You've Never Been. And I think that's pretty exciting to think that you can, with God's help and God's power and God revealing himself to you, you can actually become something that you've never been before. You can actually become something that a person that has never been in your family before. And you're not stuck. You're not stuck. And we want you to appreciate, we all want to appreciate our families and what they give to us. And, and most of the time, it's, most of the time, families do contribute something to our lives that we wouldn't want to change. But there's also some ways you can get stuck in family and get stuck in your culture and all of that. So that's what this today's about. Today's about leaving and cleaving, not leaving your spouse or leaving, leaving your parents and marrying your wife, as the scripture says, but leaving a lot of things and cleaving to God and see how that goes. Here's what uh, Jeffrey, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, I, just, just off the top, though, let me stop one other thing. I, I like to give credit to those people that are resources for the sermons, and I don't like to always stop every time I mention something that that guy said and tell you he said it, uh, but that's too tedious. But uh, I do want to give uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, I, I believe he passed away, someone told me, but uh, a, a tremendous uh, orator uh, from England. And so uh, I, I, because I'm preaching about Abraham, I wanted to investigate uh, Hebrew and Jewish history. Uh, and so he had some incredible things to say that I ripped off. And, um, and uh, I, I, you know, uh, Tim Keller always says when he doesn't have time to prepare very much, you're going to hear a lot of C.S. Lewis <laughs> from him. And myself, I, I, I spent the normal time preparing this week, so this wouldn't fit, but uh, my go-to guy is often Tim Keller. You know, when he takes the scripture apart, just nobody to me takes the scripture apart and puts it back together like Keller does. And so um, I, I got a lot out of Keller that you're going to hear in this sermon today. Uh, so I want to give them credit so I won't be fired for plagiarism. Uh, let's go. Jeffrey Sachs, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, said leaders lead. That is not to say they don't follow. What they follow is different from most people, though what most people follow. They don't conform because other people are conforming. They don't do what others do merely because others are doing it. They follow an inner voice, a call. They have a vision, not of what is, but what might be. They think outside the box. They march to a different tune. Never was this more dramatically signaled than in the first words of God to Abraham, the words that set Jewish history in motion. Genesis 12:1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. We're all shaped by the culture around us. We naturally absorb the culture's values. We absorb its way of being. At an even deeper level, we're shaped by our families and our friends and what we think and how we act. Abraham was called to leave those things. He was called to 
to use a psychological term, differentiate himself. Not, not just be different for the different sake of being different, but to be different to save himself, as we're going to see in a moment, and his family. And, and secondly, to start something new, something that had never been seen before. He left to start a new nation and a new religion. A religion that would reconcile humans to God. A religion that would teach humans how to live righteously and beautifully. God commissioned Abraham. I want you to go. I want you to teach your children and your children's children and your household how to be in the world and how to follow the way of the Lord. The entire Jewish culture sprung out of that. Abraham is without question the most important person in world history. He is claimed to be the spiritual father by 2.4 billion Christians in the globe right now. 1.6 billion Muslims and 13 million Jews. Life didn't just happen to Abraham. Abraham happened to life. <laughs> and that's what I want to challenge you about. He, he didn't just go with the flow of events. He, he stood against family culture. He stood against Everything. He stood alone. What made Abraham great was one thing. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The call of God. What can make your life distinctive today and what can make your life special is the call of God on your life. It really is. You, you hear the call of God to salvation. You are not a Christian without the call of God on your life. You hear the call of God to atonement, salvation. You heed the call of salvation and God responds. The most important thing you could ever realize is that God has made a claim on your life. That's the most important thing you could realize. And along with that claim is a call to leave where you are and go to the place He will show you. We're talking about a call to leave everything behind and go with God. The Bible says of the disciples, they left their nets and followed him. What, what is your nets? Quote, in quotes. What is, the, what is the metaphor for you that could be used for the word net? Let's talk about, let's talk about three things. I, I'll do a, a Keller-esque thing today in introducing this sermon. If you ever listen to a Kim, Tim Keller sermon, he always tells you the three things he's going to talk about. So I'm going to do like Tim Keller today. I'm going to channel him a little bit. This is not, these are not his points. These are my words. The call to God, the call from God and why it matters. The call and how it transforms us. The call and finding the will to surrender. The call, let me say it again. The call and why it matters. The call and how it will transform us. The call and finding the will to surrender. So let's talk about the call and why it matters. Genesis 12, 2. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will make you into a great nation. He's, he's explaining to him why it matters. He's not telling him what the call, where he's going. He's not telling him what it's going to look like, how it's going to be. He's not giving him a three-year plan or a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. But he's telling him the results. That's what Jesus always did. Believe in me, and you will have eternal life. 
Jesus always gives you the beginning and the end, and he says, leave the middle up to me. We're going to hear more about that in the next few minutes. Leaving the middle up to him. Why? So why does it matter? Well, first of all, and there's probably 20 reasons, but I'm going to only give you two. Two reasons that I believe it matters. Because God is good, gracious, and generous. You know, most Christians read Genesis 12 too, and I've heard this for years. And they think immediately of material or temporal blessings. Immediately. And you know what? I don't have a problem with that. I'm not categorically opposed to you reading those words and thinking about how God might want to bless you materially and God might want to bless you with place and position and, 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 and things that would make you happy and people and all of, those, all of the good things of life. The Bible is very clear that we're to enjoy the good things of life. In fact, what is really interesting is this is a principle that will help you be more successful. Leaving the familiar and going to the unknown is a principle that will serve you well in every facet of your life. Every facet of your life. Many of you would do well to practice this principle in your your knowledge, your education, your job, your career, your relationships, the development of your mind. There's nothing wrong with taking a text that has a deeper meaning and extracting the more shallow meaning from it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking a text that has some grand vision behind it and using it for your temporal life, and using it for your benefit. You know, the most famous whine is, I'm not good at math. It's more often because we don't want the discomfort of learning new skills, rather than because we were born with a math-adverse brain. we're, We're not good at math because we don't want to be good at math. That's the truth, Right? (laughs) <laughs> I knew I know Melissa Mills was born with a brain that doesn't do math I, I'm sorry okay always got to be a, a contrarian in the crowd you know I'll say a lot of you a lot of you aren't good at math because you don't try to be good at math <laughs> you don't have to be a here, here's the real point you don't have to be a Christian to be blessed by the success principles that God has graciously instantiated into the fabric of reality, and he's put them right in the Word. God is very generous with success principles. Motivational speakers have built motivational speaking and writing empires using the principle of Scripture to teach people how to be more successful in their life, and God is cool with that because he's a generous God who loves sinners. And he doesn't mind sharing his good stuff. He's an open source information God. He's an open source information God. He doesn't mind sharing his best stuff with people who want nothing to do with him. Because he is a good God. And he, in fact, there's a number of verses that, I, that say this. I could, there's probably 20, but I'll only give you two or three. Proverbs 1.20 says, Out in the wisdom, out in the open rather, Out in the open, wisdom cries, calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out at the city gate. She makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will you mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? (laughs) The Solomon is saying the wisdom of God is available for every politician, 
The wisdom of God is available for every public educator. The wisdom of God is available for every corporation and every business person and every individual in this place, no matter what your relationship with God is. That is a good God, my friend. That is a good God. It doesn't say, if you will serve me and you will give me all of your life, then I'll tell you the secrets of success. No, God says, here they are. Right on, just, just click God.com. <laughs> and you can know everything I know about how to have a great life. Somebody give God a hand right now. <laughs> That's a good God, man. Let me give you a couple more verses that affirm this, because somebody out there doesn't believe it yet, right? Somebody's going, no, no way. The children of darkness are wiser than the children of light, Jesus said. Luke 16, 8, Christ admonished us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a God I want to go with. We took about the generosity of God, and, 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 and he shows us how to have a maximum flourishing life even when we don't care about him. It really should be no problem to hold God's principles for psychological and secular success and, and the complete surrender to his will that we're going to talk about in a minute for eternal significance. We have to hold those in holy tension. I, I love this quote by, by uh, uh, L. Scott Fitzgerald and we'll, we'll bring it back in a little later in the sermon I think. The test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time. God's wisdom is available for your, for your success to have a better life, probably a better marriage, probably a better family, probably a better business. But there's a deeper reason why you should be interested in God. It matters because it's the hope of the world and generations will reap what we sow. Well, I was kidding around with uh, Eden yesterday and uh, giving Sherry a hard time because cause Sherry very, was very concerned about what the grandchildren would call her. And, 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 you know, you have no control over that, right? Grandparents, you have no control over what they call you. And this is probably a southern thing, but my grandmother McCutcheon was granny. We called her Granny McCutcheon. And now, now Sherry would hate that <laughs> if the children called her Granny. That, I think, is that a Southern thing, Steve? I think that's a Southern. I think that's a Texas thing. Granny McCutcheon. But, but granny, granny McCutcheon, Granny was a stoic individual. I used to hate to go to her house because everybody had to go to bed at 8 o'clock. <laughs> she was a stoic individual. She wasn't very expressive. She didn't go around hugging people and but boy, she was strong. And my grandfather passed away when he was 45. And she had 10 children. And she heard that there was a move of God in East Austin, Texas. And she took those 10 children and walked two, three miles, I don't know, probably, probably 30 miles, I don't know. <laughs> Uphill both ways. <laughs> she... She walked to church. 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, when the revivals, they would walk every night. Can you imagine those, like the children of Israel going across Austin, Texas? Four of those young men, four of those boys became ordained ministers of gospel. You know? I'm here today. I'm standing up here today preaching to you. And whatever you think of whatever I am to you in this community, it's because Granny made a choice that she was going to serve God. And it was the most important thing in her life. And, and, and Sherry's family is similar. Uh, I think I see his mom back there. There you are. My, uh, mom's back there. You, you, you were the first one in your family to come to Christ, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, my, back in Millington, Tennessee, she was the first one to come to Jesus. And her mother came to Christ later. And her mother was in our church in Tampa, Florida, with my brother and I. And she would have the young youth pastor and assistant pastor, which was me, over for breakfast about once a week. And she and, she and Glover, would, we would eat bacon and eggs, and then we'd go into the living room and join hands, and she would start praying, and that woman would pray. She would start crying and praying over me that God would bless my life. And uh, you are a result of the choices people made before you were born. There's these haunting, he, there's these haunting lyrics. Uh, Genesis 12, 2 says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. That was the promise. If you will make the right choice, the generations will rise up and love you. Did that work out for Abraham? Nearly 5 billion people call him Father Abraham. Right? We, we used to sing a song back in the charismatic movement days. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I, well, Melissa, why did we do hand motions with it? We, I guess we were walking to, to the promised land. Yeah, you put, that was it. That was, we, we had to do hand motions. We couldn't just sing it, right? Sarah Groves, a very underrated songwriter, by the way, but she wrote these haunting lyrics that I listened to many years ago. I can taste the fruit of Eve. I'm aware of sickness, death, and disease. The results of our choices are vast. Eve was the first, but she wasn't the last. And if I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree, my mouth and my hands would be covered with fruit, things I shouldn't know and things I shouldn't see. Remind me of this every decision, with every decision, generations will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. Those words haunt me. That verse and those lyrics can combine the secular with the eternal. You will be a blessing, can't be reduced to passing on the good fortune of driving BMWs and living gated communities. <laughs> Joshua 24.1, I, I, I want to show you this. Joshua 24.1 illuminates the significance of Abraham's call, especially how it captures the potential of recommending humans to the Creator and reuniting humans with the Creator. Now, now get this scene. It's sometime later. Israel is now in the promised land that God promised to Abraham. They have conquered and they've been given the land flowing with milk and honey. 
And Joshua calls everybody together. And he says, he assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, verse 1. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Let that sink in for a minute. Abraham was an idolater. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. Now, here's what's not readily apparent when you read the text and you go back to chapter 11 and you read about Abraham and his, his father, his father uh, Terah and, and, and them living. What, what, what is not readily apparent in the text is that Abraham and his father Terah, they were in what is known as the line of Seth. Seth was their great-great-great-grandfather. And the Bible says, in, in earlier in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 4 or 5, Genesis 5, I believe, it says that when Seth was born, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. So Seth and his line were the people who began to call on the name of the Lord. They were the ones who began to pursue God again when culture had gone away from God. I know some of you think culture's always been close to God till now. Well, <laughs> they, they went away from God way back in the beginning. And when Seth was born, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So the, so the, the Sethites, the family of Seth, were those who were pursuing God but here they get to Terah. Terah is the last living, and Abraham is the last living relative of Seth. And there's a little bit of drama here because they have become idolaters. Terah's name meant moon. Not anything about worshiping Yahweh or Elohim, but moon. That's a, that means he worshiped the creation, not the creator. And do you get the situation? Things are desperate. The faith in, of having anyone in the earth who called on God was about to be extinct. And not only that, Abraham's wife was, was barren. She could not have a baby. So it's about to all be over. It's about the legacy of God on the earth. It's about to end. And God didn't panic. He just went and tapped Abraham on the shoulder and said, you need to get out of here. You need to leave. And that's what happened. Terah took his son, Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, 32. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson, and Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldees, that's where they lived, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived there 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now I want to get back to that in a second, because that's really important. But I just want to say this right quick. The community, this doesn't mean we're not to love and live in community with our families, our church, our close associates and friends, but it does mean there's a radicalness to the call of God that is expressed in that words of the old chorus, though none go with me, I will follow. And it's absolutely essential also, get this, it's absolutely essential to, 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 to not only 
to say the word family as a metaphor for your, your politics, your, your personality, your, uh, your, your culture, your career, your, your academic and ed- educational training that may have become idolatrous. Notice, the whole family started toward Canaan, the destination that God had in mind, but they stopped at Haran. Why? Because they didn't want to go any further. They didn't want to go any further. So once again, put those other words there for not just family, but your personality analysis. I, I, I almost dread to hear anyone tell me their personality analysis anymore because I feel like a lot of us get stuck in whatever where personality analysis says we are. We think we can't go beyond it. I almost don't even want to give spiritual gift tests anymore because when you give people a spiritual gift test and, you, and God calls them to be, do something that's outside of their spiritual gift, gift test, they say, no, I'm a teacher, I'm a mercy giver, I'm an administrator, and, and so God couldn't be calling me to do that. Listen, the call of God is to lead you where you've never been. The call of God is to help you do what you've never done. The call of God is to help you to be what you've never been before. I get excited about that. I think you're a little hesitant. (laughs) Understandably. See, Abraham, the Bible didn't say they were bad people. I think they were a good family. But it's not enough to be a part of a Christian ethos. You have to hear the radical call of God in your life. Tom Keller says, said it this way, you know God, I'm from Scotland and I feel at home in a Presbyterian church. Or I'm Italian and I feel at home in a Roman Catholic church. Or I'm from Mississippi and I feel at home in a Baptist church. It's not enough to be a part of the environment. It's not enough to, to like being around Christians. God, I like being around Christians, we say. Have you encountered God for yourself? Has it penetrated you as an individual? That's what the question is today. To paraphrase a maxim, you can buy at a lot of gift shops. A bird sitting on a branch is never afraid of the branch breaking because its trust is not in the branch, but in its wings. Your family is the branch you're sitting on. Your politics is the branch you're sitting on. Your career is the branch you're sitting on. But if you think that's what's holding you up, you're mistaken. Because God, God, God has given you the power to hold you up and you don't have to be afraid to become an individual. Somebody say amen. amen. The opening words of God's call on Abraham were, go from. I won't pronounce it like the Hebrews do or you would offer me some mucinex. <laughs> like Lekka. It's actually translated, go for yourself. The family, like I said, your family is the branch you're setting on. Abraham was a part of a good family, the best family on earth, by the way. But it wasn't enough. It's very important to remember that Scott Fitzgerald quote, holding those two things in tension, loving my family, but differentiating myself from my family. It doesn't matter how good my family is. If my kids don't hear the call of God for themselves, they're going to be idolaters. My children are going to be nice, moral, and religious people because we are nice, moral, and religious people, but they're going to be spiritually dead 
if they don't hear the call of God. They're going to live for their career. They will live for their families. They will live for their politics or something else unless the call of God comes into their life. God will transform you so that you can live in your family and other family-like affiliations that you have, but yet think apart from them and those other family-like affiliations. The call of God. We're going to talk about in a minute of why it's transformational. It's transformational, number one, because it's personal. That's what I've been talking about for the last couple of minutes. But in a minute, we're going to talk about it's transformational because it's, we'll use the word paramount, top of the, top of the order. Uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, history, and if you go back to the 12th century, uh, there was a, a king, King Henry II was the king of England, and he had, he had a chancellor, which was his best friend named, named Thomas Becket. And... Uh, 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 Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole made a movie that many years ago. I think it was. I think they won Oscars for that movie. It was an incredible movie. But it's a true story. It's a true story because Thomas Beckett and uh, and King Henry were drinking buddies, and other buddies and other nefarious activities. And. Um, in those days, the, 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 the king and the crown, the, the, the king and, and the church were always competing for who would have the most authority. And if the king couldn't control the church, he couldn't control his kingdom. And if the church couldn't control the king, they couldn't, they couldn't control the kingdom. So there was always competition. So King Henry gets this brilliant idea that he will make Thomas Becket the Archbishop of Canterbury, his drinking buddy. And that's what he did. King Henry II made Thomas Becket the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, and so here he goes down over to London. He's serving communion. He's 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 taking confession and all of this stuff because King Henry thought he could control his kingdom, and Thomas Becket would do everything he said. But this transformation happened to Thomas Becket. The sense of the call began to become more powerful to him than his friendship with King Henry. And he began to resist the immoral and wrong things that King Henry was doing. And, and, and it made King Henry so furious, and we don't, history doesn't, we don't really know if he sent those four guys down to murder uh, Thomas Becket or not, but four, four of the king's henchmen went down, and, and, and while, while, king, while Thomas, Becket, Thomas Becket was so now, at this point, so devoted to, 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 coming, having, uh, to serving his congregation, and so devoted to, to serving the sacraments, that he knew those men were at the door, but he refused to lock the door when they said we should lock the door. He refused to lock the door because he said, I will always serve the people I'm called to serve. And while he's trying to serve, the, the, while he's trying to conduct the service, they murdered him. That's what happens to you when you start to feel the weight of God's call on your life. 
it transforms you. It changes you. It makes you someone you never thought you could be. Someone who's much better than you ever wanted to be or desired to be. When God's call comes to your life, I'm telling you, it's an amazing, wonderful thing. God, Abraham wasn't qualified. God didn't go say, I've got to find a guy who's qualified. Abraham wasn't qualified. The call qualified him. The call qualified him. The call of God on his life. Abraham was saved by grace. God's grace called him. And some people think if it's grace, it's all going to be really easy and no hardships and no difficulty. It's going to be some piece of cake because there's grace. I'm just going to be on these, I'm just going to float around on clouds of grace all the time and I'm never going to suffer. Well, Abraham suffered, believe me. He got, he got down there and they had a famine. He, he got into Canaan. The first thing, he had a famine. He had to flee to Egypt. And all kinds of terrible, difficult things happened in the life of Abraham. But in the end, he won. He won because he answered the call. Amen? The call of God is transformational because it's paramount. God actually said to Abraham, get out. And Abraham says, where are we going? God says, I'll show you later. <laughs> God says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, how are you going to do that? God says, I'll show you later. Just trust me. Finally, he says, go to the top of the mountain. Put your son to death. Abraham said, why? God said, I'll tell you later. Just climb. <laughs> That's Christianity. Getting quiet in here. That's Christianity. We tend to go... I'm interested in being Christian, but will I have to break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Or will I have to stop sleeping with them? Or will I have to stop doing blank? Or will I have to start doing blank? Will I be able to continue my current lifestyle, my materialistic lifestyle? And uh, will I? <laughs> if we're asking those questions, we're not ready. We're not ready for God to call us. Because God doesn't always answer those questions, right? Uh, the call, the, by the way, the, the, the call has three phases. Number one, it's the call, uh, it's the one, it's the call to myself, number one. The call to face myself. Abraham had to face the fact that he wasn't where he needed to be. I, he wasn't living where he needed to live. That's the first thing. We, we call it in Christianity, we call it Conviction. You, you feel convicted. I'm not what I should be. I'm not where I should be. That's the first thing. It was the call to himself. The, the, the second thing, it was the call to himself, to God. Abraham, your first loyalty is to me. And my first loyalty is you. You, you know what the Bible said later? It called Abraham the friend of God. You know that's your first calling today? Or your second calling after you, after you get uncomfortable with where you're at? Your second calling is to become a friend of God. It's that simple. It's that simple. You, your pursuit has to become, how can I have a better relationship with God? How can I be on more friendly terms? How can I love Him more? And how can I understand how much He loves me and be in a place where He expresses more of His love and blessing to me? The third phase of the call is the call itself that God reveals to you later. The ministry that he calls you to. The people that he calls you to. The place that he calls you to. 
But that's all based on your friendship with God. Abraham would then spend the rest of his life reflecting the very character and nature of the one who was yet to appear, Jesus. And this parallels perfectly. Every one of us in this room are right now in one of those phases of the cross. I know we would all prefer success over suffering, but the call is so paramount that if I understand it, I will choose suffering over missing the meaning and purpose of life. I said, the call of God is so powerful and wonderful that when I grasp it, I understand that if it includes suffering, it's still the better way to go. I would rather suffer with Jesus than be prosperous without him. I would rather suffer in the call of God than to have riches and prosperity and peace and joy without it. A great example in history, in fact, uh, the, the Portuguese brothers in the church have been really wonderful to bring me into Portuguese culture. And they've, uh, uh, Henry, you back there? Hank, you back there? Hank's back there. And, and he keeps taking me to Portuguese restaurants in New Bedford and Fall River. We keep going down there and eating food. And I still don't understand why you guys put rice and potatoes in the same dish. I, I just don't understand. <laughs> it's amazing, she says. Okay. I, it's good. I'm, I'm a little short of amazing. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, the right seasoning. Okay. Thank you. Tommy just opened up the world to me. The right seasoning, Tommy. You never told me. But what's even better than the food is I, I'm enjoying knowing more about Portuguese culture. And uh, uh, Moises Esteves was with us the last time we went out. And he starts telling me the story about Aristides de Souza Mendes. Aristides de Souza Mendes saved more people, more Jews in the Holocaust than Oscar Schindler did. And he, I, we don't hear much about him for some reason, but here's the situation. I'll try to get it to you briefly. I've only got a couple minutes. Let me get it to you briefly. He was, a, he was a customs officer in Bordeaux, France in 1940. And thousands of Jews were coming to his, his uh, uh, customs station, or whatever you call it. Thousands of Jews were coming, running from Nazi uh, per persecution and death. And he had been ordered not to give any of them visas. Because if he gave them a visa to go to Portugal, they could go to Lisbon. And, and because even though Lisbon was a supporter of Hitler, they were not, they, they were not, uh, they were not uh, part of the war. And so people could go to Lisbon and then they could travel to other parts of the world. They could get out. So he had been ordered not to give one single visa. But as the crowds grew and got bigger and bigger, here's what he said. He said these words. I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God. Starting today, here's what he said, this exact quote. Starting today, I will obey my conscience as a Christian. Even if I am dismissed, I can only act as a Christian as my conscience tells me. And he began to write visas. He began to hand out visas. He gave so many visas that they ran out of the official document and they started writing it on scraps of paper. And he would put his seal on it and watch these thousands of Jews. And, and, and not only that, he followed them 
because the word got out into Portugal that they were not to let them in. So he followed them and showed them a way around to a, to, a, to a port of entry that had not gotten the news that they were not supposed to let them in. So he saved thousands and thousands of Jewish lives. And Salazar, the, the dictator uh, of Portugal at the time, was so angry with him that he did everything he could to ruin his life. And in fact, he did ruin his life. He had six children. None of those children were allowed to go to, 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 go to any public education or college or university in Portugal. And, and they were not allowed, he was not allowed to work anymore. He became a pauper, and his children scattered around the world to find opportunity, and he, and he died a pauper. But here's what he said right before he died. He said, I could not have acted otherwise. I therefore accept all that has befallen me with love. What do I want with my life? Am I so fascinated with having the right car or living in the right house or having a membership at the right country club? that I would give up my purpose, that I would give up something as great as that, that I would give up the opportunity to change the world for some people? Let's close with this, and if you'll bear with me for a couple more minutes, the call and the finding, the will to surrender. How do we bring ourselves to surrender like Abraham? It's easy to talk about it. It's easy even for me to get emotional about it. But here's, here's what you have to do. You have to learn from the Master. That's Jesus. He died for everyone, the Bible says, that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. Surrendering is not for amateurs. Letting go is not for fools. <laughs> Do a little test with me. You've got, you got to work with me, okay? Will you, will you do something if I ask you to do it? Take, take, make two fists. No, don't make them tight yet. I'm going to tell you to do that in a minute. I want to show you that there's power in letting go. Now, now I want you to tighten them, but as tight as you can take them, and, and you must not loosen your grip until I tell you. You must hold it tight, make it so tight, make that your wrist feel it, that your elbows feel it, make it tight. Now, is it feeling good yet? Is it feeling good yet to hold on, to have a death grip on the things of this world? Is it, is it feeling good yet? And I don't know how many golfers we have here, but one thing I've learned about golf is if you grip your club like it's a, in a death grip, like you're choking somebody, you will not have any power to hit the ball. It's when you relax that you have power. Now, now, is anybody feeling good yet? Are your wrists feeling good? Anybody? Okay, you can let go now. How does that feel? Huh? Is that better? You're going to feel better about your life when you let go of that which you think is giving you security and that which you think is so important and that which you think you have to have to be happy. You are going to be happier when you become like Jesus who left his father so we could have him as our father. Who left his heavenly home so we could have a heavenly home. 
who left his glory so we could have some glory, who left all that was beautiful and comfortable so we could gaze upon that which is beautiful and so he could say to us, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus today because that's how you get the power to do this. And you will never be fulfilled and you will never have everything you want in life until you surrender to Christ. One thing about culture is when they stop believing in God, they soon start believing in the devil. Because the devil shows up to run the show. And I'm not, go, I'm not down with that. I want to surrender my life to God. He surrendered, as Jack Easterby preached up here a couple years ago. He surrendered so we can surrender.